If you have a Bible this morning, please open it to Matthew chapter 2. We'll soon be reading the first 12 verses of that Bible, or of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 2 on page 757 of that Bible. When I was young, or at the very least younger, I used to look up at the heavens and ask God for signs. I used to want him to, to speak to me, to give me comfort and the travails of this world, whatever it happened to be that I was going through, through signs in the heavens. And to be honest with you, I'm not actually sure what I expected from that. If a comet was to go across the sky the minute that I prayed that, I wouldn't have the faintest idea how to interpret that sign unless it had one of those Burt Watson signs hanging off the back of it. I don't know if I expected Mufasa to show up and talk to me. I don't know exactly what I expected. I just wanted something from him. We're not wrong to expect or to want the stars to speak. Stars do actually speak to us. They do tell us of the glory of God. We look up at the skies. Mankind has long looked up at the skies and thought how wonderful and magnificent and beautiful that sky is, whether it is the sun or whether it is the moon or whether it is the stars. The scripture says that we ought to look at those things and understand the glory of one who made them to be far surpassing their glory. Whether you're living in China during the Yuan dynasty or you're an aborigine in Africa or you're a Viking, you should be able to look up at the skies and to realize that the glory of God is there. It speaks of it. This is precisely what Psalm 19 is getting at. That psalm reads that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens do indeed speak of the glory of God. They speak to us, although they are soundless. They tell us, although they have no voice. But although they speak this very clear thing to us, we rightly understand and know that human beings in our own sin confuse these things. We suppress the knowledge of God. The more we considered the stars, the more foolish we became the more entrapped in our own sin and idolatry. As Paul says, although mankind knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Looking at the skies, looking at the way in which the world worked around us, we thought that we could gain wisdom or what is worse, we thought that we were already wise. Able to plumb the depths of the secrets of the cosmos we became nothing but fools. So as this was no sure way for God to show us who he is or what he has done, he gave us scripture. And so it is scripture that we cling to. And as we do so, we turn to Matthew chapter 2 to hear a story about how certain men came to find Jesus through the stars and through the scripture. Let us read. And as we do so, think about all of Revelation and what that revelation is meant to do for us. Let us begin reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word too, that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of our God. Before we dig into the meat of the text today, I, I want to clarify a couple of things because this text kind of screams out for me to clarify a couple of things. Um, the first two of which have to do with your nativity scenes at home, which, again, I will stress, ought to be put away by now. Remember, I warned you in mid-January that stuff should be put away. It's, it's now mid-February. That, that should be locked up in a closet, not to come out until at least after Thanksgiving. But nevertheless, if you were to go and dig through your Christmas stuff and you were to find that nativity scene, you would find the nativity scene with certain sort of ubiquitous parts. There'd be a, something that looks like a barn in, in diorama form, and, and you would have in it a, a manger so the Christ child could lay in it, and Mary and Joseph would be there. The shepherds would be there, there because it's in a barn, a, a cow, and the shepherds are there, so a sheep and perhaps an angel. And along with all of those, you would find three wise men. Now, the first part of our clarity is simply to say that we don't know how many wise men there were. There's a natural reason why most people think it's three, and that is because there are three gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And so, one gift for each of the wise men who have come, but in truth, we're not told that there's three. The only real reason that's even mentioned is because it's, it's sort of a, a way to remember and to remind us that even tradition affects how we think of Scripture. Most people would consider that Scripture told them that there were three wise men who came and visited Mary and the child. But that's not actually what Scripture says. It says a plurality of them. It's likely more than two, otherwise they would say two. Could be three, could be five, it could be 25 of them, although that seems like it's a bit crowded. So we don't know. Three's perfectly fine. Don't throw away the wise men for that reason. Throw them away for this reason. And the second bit of clarity is that they're, they're present with the shepherds. Now, in your nativity scene, when you open your Bible to the book of Luke, it's clear that the shepherds were there when Jesus was indeed a small baby. The shepherds hear the angels say to them, for unto you is born this day. And they hear that word and they say, well, let's go see him. And now if it took him a week, he's still probably laying in the manger. When Herod here finds out how long they saw the star in the sky, later on in our passage, which we'll talk about next week, he decides that it's time to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem. And he does it for two years and under. 
which means likely that when the wise men finally got to Bethlehem, Jesus was walking, at least toddling around, which is kind of a fun little thought to have. The, the God of all the world was kind of stumbling around and tumbling around, and they were probably trying to sit him down to give him these gifts and to worship him, and he got up and he walked around, and he didn't care about the gold, he just cared about the box that it came in. So, <laughs> so the, the wise men shouldn't be in that nativity scene in the first place. And then the third thing, most importantly, is, is this. We call these guys wise men because we think that they're wise. They've actually come to Jesus Christ. They've come to worship him, as it were, to honor him, to revere him. We think of them as wise. But I think calling them wise automatically gets us to think that they were something they weren't. It paints them in in a particularly good light. I don't think that they're meant at first blush to be painted in that light. They were magi. Magi are, are a weird confluence of astronomers and astrologers and magicians and not like the pull a rabbit out of the hat pick a card any card type of magician but like dark arts evil magician type people idolaters we would have no trouble saying that they did not believe in the one true and living god people who came from the east but nevertheless matthew calls them out as the first people in his gospel to come and to see this Christ child who has been born king of the Jews. It is a reminder that Matthew is portraying that God can call whomever he wants to, whenever he wants to, however he wants to, and bring them to Jesus. So with those sort of clarifying things aside, let us go to what we can glean from our text this morning. The first thing I want to put before you is that we ought to expect God's signs. We ought to expect God's signs. God gives to these magi a star. He brings them a star that he might bring them to Jerusalem. And it is quite a mysterious star at that. It pops up and then it apparently disappears and then it pops up again. And not only does it pop up again, but it is such a brilliant star that it is able to direct them with precision that GPS rivals to the precise house. So Herod says to them, go and search diligently. And God's like, no, nah, you don't have to search diligently here. It's, it's like the first century neon sign saying, this is where you're supposed to go. And people have tried to make sense of what this star could be. And, and that first thing we need to clarify is that honestly, there's no way that anyone in the first century thought of what we think of when they say star, right? They're not thinking of a gaseous ball of fusion millions if not billions of light years away. What they're thinking of is just a light in the sky. So we don't know what it is. People have tried to explain that the Chinese apparently have recorded down in either 4, 5, 6, or 7 BC a supernova that might have happened, which would have been this oddity in the sky. There was apparently at this time a, a, a congruence of both Jupiter and Saturn, which would have made them especially bright and odd, again, in the night sky. Some people think it's a comet. I don't think it's any of those things. I think it's much more likely that it's something like an angel or something that just shined in the night because obviously the thing moves and obviously the thing directed them. And none of those other bits, no matter how natural they might be and no matter how much they might have occurred, actually explains what's going on. God gives them something to follow. He gives them a sign in the sky. Most of us are probably a little wary of trusting to the sort of external revelation. We, 
We have talked about the fact that we misinterpret the stars and we can misinterpret our visions. And and scripture is here to give us a more sure guide. But frankly, we kind of do this stuff all the time. This is exactly why we pray, right? Typically, we don't pray for stuff that we know that the Bible has already told us. God, should I murder this guy? No, no, I, I... kind of made that clear to you. Please read again, right? So what do we pray for? We pray for things that we expect God to give us an answer to somehow, but that aren't really written out in scripture. So if if you have an uncle who passes and he gives you a a fairly sizable sum of money, 50,000 or so, say, I want to know how best to steward the gift that's been given to me. Well, how are you going to do that? Scripture gives you guidelines. You've got to be generous with it. You ought to seek first the kingdom of God. But that's not helping you decide how much to put aside for your your kid's education, how much to put aside for retirement, how much to possibly spend on on a vacation or or to spend on a mission trip or to spend just giving to missionaries or giving to the church. It it doesn't help you explain any of those things. So you ask God for wisdom. That wisdom's got to come from somewhere. Wisdom does in part come from the word, but it comes from external sources as well. God oftentimes gives us signs and gives us wisdom and gives us hints from external sources of wisdom. By the way, this was one of the chief promises of the new covenant and the sending and the reception of the Spirit. So when Pentecost falls on the apostles and they start speaking in these tongues, Peter says this is just the fulfillment of Scripture. This is just what Joel said when Joel says that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. This is part and parcel of how God directs people all the way through the first chapter of Matthew through the second chapter of Matthew. Joseph has a dream. Take Mary as your wife. These wise men get a star in the sky. Later on, they're warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod, go another route. Joseph is warned in a dream, take the mother of the child and the child himself and flee. That's exactly what happens steadily throughout the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. God will always use the most appropriate means to get our attention. Perhaps for you it's not dreams. It's not visits by angels, but he, he does use the most appropriate thing. It's, it's interesting that God uses the very thing that would draw these men. It's really interesting because this is the very thing that was built off of their ideology and their idolatry. This was the thing that led them astray from God. They wanted to find out about God by looking up in the stars, and they worshiped the stars, and they thought all the answers were in the stars. So what does God do for men who are continually looking at the stars? He sends them a star. This sort of thing isn't a remnant of the first century. It is actually fairly common today. If you talk to a missionary who deals with Muslims in any way, shape, or form and has had any sort of success in bringing Muslims to the faith, there is a really good chance that they will know a Muslim who will tell them a story, a former Muslim who will tell them a story about how they came to Christ involving a vision or a dream of Jesus. Mission Frontiers, not too long ago, recorded that a survey of around four, or excuse me, 600 Muslims who had come to faith in Jesus, a full 25% of them recorded that they saw a vision or had a dream about Jesus. And it was one of the things that led them to go back 
to the Christian missionaries and say, how am I supposed to make sense of this? The point is simply this. God can indeed speak to us through abnormal means. We should be ready and possibly waiting for such things. And certainly, this is the kind of thing that we pray for. And why would we expect that God would do otherwise? The Spirit is ours, living and working in us. There's no reason to limit his work simply to the Word. So trust that God is speaking to you, working in you, and helping you along in a variety of ways. Now, at the same time, we are not so foolish as to think that there aren't cautions that we have to put in place. And we're going to get to that in a minute. After all, if we can interpret the word of God wrong, and we do. Every person in here has at some point in time interpreted the word of God wrong. You can interpret visions and dreams wrong as well. But with all of that being said, don't fret and be overly skeptical of God speaking to you through other means. He might very well be leading you, helping you to find Christ and his will. With that being said, though, point number two is examine God's scripture. Examine God's scripture. We can come to this and we can see how God works here and we can say, what are we to make of Scripture in all this? Scripture is recording it for us, so we're obviously coming to Scripture, but why didn't they come to Scripture? Why did God lead them to the Christ child completely outside of Scripture? And if he does that sort of thing, if he really, truly does that sort of thing, that changes a huge amount for how we go about our lives. It changes a huge amount about how we would find Christ ourselves. Can we find Christ just by praying and, and looking up at the stars? Can, can we excuse our lack of missionary zeal and effort by saying, listen, if God wants to save the heathens, he can do it by himself. He doesn't need you or me. Well, the good of Scripture is found, as Paul might say, much in every way. But let's start by asking a somewhat different question, and we'll tackle this on two fronts. These men know something, and their particular statement when they walk into Jerusalem is really specific. They don't walk in saying things like, hey, we saw this star, and we're wondering if you could help us make sense of it. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They are really certain that this is a star that marks a birth. Now, that, honestly, in the Greco-Roman world, not all that odd. There's reports of people doing this to, like, different Caesars and stuff like that. But why would they think that this was born the king of the Jews this day? The Jews were not an incredibly famous people. They, they were not an incredibly important people. They were sort of a backwater people, a very small population of them, that lived under the oppression of Rome. And certainly a king coming up in Jerusalem and a king coming up in Israel... Not terribly important unless you're an Israelite. So why? What well, we have to go off of is pretty slim evidence, but I, I do want to make the case that it's likely, I think, that they would have gotten this from, well, Scripture. The Jews were, of course, exiled out east. It's thought that these guys were from possibly Sheba or as far east as Babylon. And the people of God had been spread there. And the people of God and the diaspora were, were spread all over the known world, which means that their scripture would have been available all over the known world. And if you were a polytheistic bloke who wanted to study things and wanted to know things as best you could, you would get your hands on as many of these things as you could. And if you did, you would find out that very early on, in what the Jews consider the most important of books, the Torah, there was a prophecy made by another magi, 
this magi was hired by a, another king to curse the people of Israel as they were wandering through his backyard. And he didn't like it. And Balak hired Balaam, the prophet. And he said, you, you're going to curse these guys. And Balaam said, well, I'll see what I can do. And he blessed them time and time again. And it really annoyed Balak. It's actually a really funny story involving a donkey who talks. You can go read it. It's hilarious. So Numbers 14 and so our numbers in the 20s talks about these things. About the fourth time Balaam opens his mouth, he's talking about God, and he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. In other words, it's some other time and some other place. And he can't be more specific than that. And he's talking about God. I see God, but not now. I see him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So these men see a star rise, and it rises for them in the west. And it rises directly where Israel would be, because they come to Jerusalem. And they're trying to make sense out of this. And coming across this, it is the scepter, a clear sign of, of royalty, a clear sign that there is a king, typically born in this case, and they come and they say, hey, this must be the king of the Jews who has been born. At any rate, even if that's not why, it's possible that that's why. But another factor in all of this is that the star led them to Jerusalem. It did not lead them to Bethlehem. They didn't know how to get where they were going. They didn't know how to finally get to the end. They walk into Jerusalem and they seem to just be asking everybody, where is he who was born? They're not even asking any individual particular people. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Our star led us here in general, but we've got nowhere else to go. It is not until there's a scriptural answer to it that they have any idea what's supposed to happen. Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes together and he asks them, well, where is the Christ to be born? The nature of their answer is so quick, at least in the text of Matthew, that it makes it seem like this was the sort of most obvious answer. Like, he asked the question before he can even finish asking it, five or six people have already shouted out Bethlehem. Like, do you even read the scrolls, Herod? The answer is no, he doesn't. But nevertheless, they, they say, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, this is what's, what's been written for us. It's not until they find out that from the scriptures, it's in Bethlehem that Christ is to be born, that they actually leave again. And it's not until after they go to the scriptures and find out from the scriptures where that's supposed to happen, does the star reappear again. The extra biblical revelation that God gives them, as good as it is and as true it is, cannot drive them where they need to go. Only scripture can do that. And to be even clearer, the external revelation seems to bring them to scripture. And this also is part and parcel of what Matthew lays out in the beginning of his book. For every vision, there's this reference to Scripture. And it might not have been obvious to the people who were having the visions, but it's quite obvious to Matthew. So Joseph has a vision. An angel comes to him and says, Mary is pregnant, but she's pregnant with a child from the Holy Spirit. And Matthew says, yeah, 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 like Isaiah chapter 7. And here, there's a king born to the Jews. Yeah, 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 he's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. And then later on, take up the mother and the child and, and flee 
because out of Egypt I've called my son in Hosea 11. Continually, he says that there's a vision, but he backs it up with scripture, always backing it up with scripture. Scripture surrounds everything that God does here. The star brings them in general. Without scripture, they're lost. Scripture guides, directs, and superattends the whole process. And without scripture, we are lost. I knew a man once who had been married about 30, 35 years. His marriage ran on hard times. Certainly some of the shine had gone out of it. It was, I'm guessing, boredom, friction, distance that grew between he and his wife because of that. Certainly thought that a lot of joy had gone out of his life, and, and he wanted there to be those things. Shouldn't he be happy? Doesn't God want him to be happy? Doesn't God want him to be joyous? Doesn't God want him to, to have love and passion in his life? Lo and behold, a sign comes to him. Secretary. course he takes this as the sign that this is this is where he's supposed to go now there's excitement and she makes him happy they've got a lot of things to talk about a lot of things in common question is doesn't god want this for me no you idiot it's the same question that you ask like can we murder no it's right there next to can we murder don't commit adultery and on top of that god hates divorce It's not that divorce isn't the best of bad options at times, but it's always a bad option, and adultery is always the wrong option. He he saw this as like the response to his prayers. Here, here is a woman that you can have excitement with. Here's a woman that you can have joy with. Now, scripture, Scripture makes it a clear no. We don't just live by the signs that we see around us. We're not just led by our feelings and our dreams and our visions. We must be led by scripture in all things. And there's, there's an important extra note here. The chief priests and the scribes obviously knew why these men were here. They showed up and they were announcing it. Whereas he was born king of the Jews. They hear it. Herod is obviously shaken by this and for good reason. Because if he's born king of the Jews, Herod, who's kind of a fake king of the Jews, placed as king of the Jews by the Roman government, who doesn't have a drop of Davidic blood in his whole line, he knows that this is bad for his prospects. The whole city, though, is also shaken by it. We're not told why. Whether they feared perhaps a coming war with Rome, whether many of these chief priests and scribes had had grown comfortable in the system that they had, whether they were worried about the judgment that was to come, we cannot say, but we do know something. They knew scripture. They knew why these men were here. They knew where the men were going. They knew why the men were going there. And they all, to a man, stayed put. You go to your nativity scene, you'll see shepherds, You'll see Mary and Joseph and Jesus. You'll see sheep. You'll see three wise men. But there isn't a nativity scene in all of creation that has a chief priest or a scribe in it because they didn't go. All men, the best of men in Jerusalem, probably all of Judea, they were most skilled in the world 
the word. They had spent their, their life studying it, thinking about it, searching it, seeking it. But it didn't lead them to Christ. Yeah, we, we need to be careful to not simply interpret visions on our own. We always need to have Scripture as the center, but we also need to let Scripture guide and direct us. You can be so overly concerned with how you handle the Word that you refuse to let the Word handle you. Be led by the Scripture. Examine God's Scripture. And third, exalt God's Son. Exalt God's Son. The star reappears, and they're led to Nazareth. It stops miraculously, directly over where the child is. Now, in the text, repeatedly, there's this word worship that is being used. I do not think that it's probably the best word to use here. It is the typical word that we use for worship, but we have distinct words for like paying homage and reverencing somebody and worshiping, but Greek kind of uses one word to cover all that ground. We have distinctions, but they have more of like a sliding scale. It's hard for me to believe that these men came to actually worship the child. I don't think that that was really their intent. After all, they came to see who was born this day king of the Jews, which implies reverence, not they came to see who was incarnate as God. That wouldn't have been something really on their radar. And the fact that Herod turns around and says that to him, even if it's in secret, that he too wants to go and worship the child would have been a very odd thing for Herod to do. So while Herod is quite clear and capable of lying to people, I have no doubt about that, I just think that probably it meant more like they've come to give him reverence and, and to pay him honor and give him gifts as part of the honor. They come and they, they kneel before him. They are incredibly excited, incredibly joyous. They give him gifts. And in the end, that, that's really the point, isn't it? That's where scripture is leading us to. The purpose and the end of scripture is to lead us to Jesus. Ultimately, it's not a set of propositions. It's not to meant to be plain and unadorned doctrine, but it leads us to a person, a person who is to be honored and adored and revered and worshiped. And of all people, we need to be cautious about that because we uphold so much about the importance of scripture. We speak of it as the very word of God, not a word of God, not part of God's revelation, but the center of God's revelation, the, the rock that we continually come back to. If we want to know if it's true, we bounce it off of scripture to see if it's true. It is the word of God. We say that it's inerrant and infallible, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's pure. It's good for instruction. It's rebuking and encouraging to us. It prepares us for every good work. It is a light to our path. It's desirable. It's profitable. It's sweeter than honey. And we can speak about Scripture with all of these superlatives and are right in doing so. Let's be really clear. We're not here to worship the Word of God. As it stands in Scripture, we are here to worship the Word of God as He is as a person. Scripture is not the center of our joy and concern, and finding it is not the purpose of our lives. Scripture did not save you from your sin, and Scripture will not wipe the tears from your eyes. Only Christ will do that. Scripture is here to do one thing, to lead you to Christ, to grow you in Christ, to reveal Christ to you. It is here 
so that your worship of him might be right, true, and spiritual. It's here to expose your idolatries that you could serve him better, to renew your heart so that you might love him better, to reveal your sin so that you might revere him more. It's here to serve Christ. And we, just like other people, can easily confuse that. We are sometimes so worried about what scriptures are that we completely displace what they are to do, what their goal and their purpose is. And it might not be the thing that you want to do right now, but imagine it's in the middle of summer and you want to go to Mackinac Island, right? You can't get to Mackinac Island by swimming there, no matter how good of a swimmer you are. You're not going to get there by plane. You're not going to get there by car. And even though there's horses on the island, you probably can't get there by horse either. You're going to get there by one means, and that's a boat. Jesus is something of a far country, and there is only one vehicle that will get you to him, and that is scripture. There's only one place that you can go to to get yourself to the land of promise where your sins are relieved, where your burdens are removed, where the sun shines brightly, and the kingdom of God reigns over all things. That is through scripture. But to confuse the boat with the destination is to never reach the destination. In John 5, Jesus happens to, on the Sabbath, heal a man. People get their heads all knotted up in a pretzel about this. And they're fussing with him and fighting with him. And he ends up, as he does in the book of John, giving sort of a long speech, sermon, about what it means to do the work of God. And in John 5, he says this, talking to the Jews who are there with him. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, you, you think that this book gives you all that you need, and it does, because it points to who I am. It points to me. They missed it. You can have a high view of Scripture. You can think that it is every single thing that it claims to be. You can see in it the greatest of wisdom and instruction and hold it up against a culture that seems hell-bent on rebelling against it. You can do all of that and you can miss Christ at the end of it. Jesus is the focus, the center, and the purpose of the goal of Scripture and it is of us as well. And we uphold the importance of Scripture because of that. Because to truly know what Christ is, who he is, what he has done for us, we need to come back to Scripture. How does he want us to live our lives? We come back to because Christ is the center, we come to Scripture repeatedly. That's why we say we read, pray, sing, and say Scripture together. But it is not to uphold Scripture. It is to uphold Jesus. And notice in this passage, between this week and, and last week, the kind of Jesus that, that Matthew is upholding. If you go back to the genealogy, Jesus was said to be the son, particularly of two men. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Two very high and noble callings, because Isaac and Solomon, the listed sons of Abraham and David, were two excellent and worthy people in a lot of scripture. Isaac, the one thing that kind of defines his life is that he was born as a miracle. Sarah, far beyond the ability to give birth, well past 
birth-giving age, nevertheless has a miracle. A miracle that makes nature work again. And through the normal means of conception, she actually does bear a son because God gives her the ability to have her biology work as it did when she was a younger woman. Yet, as Matthew records it, Jesus far surpasses that. There is no man needed for this birth. This birth is a miracle beyond that miracle. If that is the thing that defines Isaac's life, Jesus is far greater. Truly, something greater than Isaac is here. Solomon was known for his gift of wisdom. Having to build the temple and to make sure that he was a king and lead the people of Israel, God comes to him and asks him. He says, ask me what I can give you. What, this, is, this is the only name it and claim it verse in the Bible. He literally tells Solomon, ask me and I will give it to you. And Solomon, in a little bout of wisdom, says, I'm, I'm really young. I got to be honest with you, God, I don't know what I'm doing. So I could use a lot of help. And God says, that's an excellent answer. You could have asked for wisdom, or you could have asked for riches. You could have asked for a long life. But instead, you ask for this wisdom. And God, God gives it to him in spades. People, people hear about Solomon from all over. He's, he is not just wise in, in how he adjudicates situations, but he is incredibly knowledgeable and smart, and all, his kingdom is well run. And people come from all over. Queen of Sheba comes to test him. She comes with a caravan of people and much riches. She watches him for a couple of days. And at a feast, she says, you know, I heard rumors, and I thought... This can't be true, so I came and, and, and tried to see if they were true. And they're not even halfway true. They, they don't even do you justice. And she leaves by giving him gold and spices. Isaiah picks that up and says this in Isaiah 60. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Which doesn't sound all that great, but I think it was meant to be a great promise too at that time. Um, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. Solomon was given this gift. And the queen of Sheba comes because she can see the wisdom of the gift that he has been given because of his actions. These men realize that this child is worthy of those same gifts without ever doing anything except for tumbling around on his little two feet. Because his wisdom is not given to him. It, it's in the very being of who he is. It's simply there by the fact that he is born. He is wisdom incarnate. And he gives wisdom out to anyone who comes to him. This is the same Jesus who will constantly make fools 
wise. He will take magicians and he will make them priests. He will make fishermen into theologians. He will take a proud Pharisee and make him a servant of all. He is wiser than Solomon could ever be. Truly, something greater than Solomon is here. And in these first two stories, that seems to be the main thing that Matthew is doing. Jesus is greater. He's better. As important as scripture is, and it is important, Jesus is better than it. And these magi come to him. And whatever Jesus does for them, he can do for you. They were the epitome of fools. They were men who turned to the stars and turned to foreign gods and thought that they could manipulate and they could see and they could understand and they could know. They could pull out of the stars all that they needed to have in order to be fully grown in their lives, fully mature in their lives, to become all that they needed to be, to be wise in the ways of the world. They were abject fools, just as Paul said they were. But God, in mercy and in grace, makes these fools into wise, wise men. Even the most foolish of people, in turning to Christ, find wisdom. Come to the source of wisdom. Being fools, be made wise. Come to Scripture. Come to Scripture. It is important and it is central, but in coming to Scripture, find Jesus. Lay gifts at his feet and honor and worship him. Being fools, become wise and worship God. Let's pray. Jesus, our Lord, our prayer is not simply to be changed into better people, although we do long for that. It is not just to be righteous and loving, although it is that. For we know that only in you are these things given to us. We pursue you, though, God, in Jesus Christ. And we trust in your promise that you will never leave or forsake us, that you will be with us throughout all of the ages. May you be glorified among your people. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and God. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response in the presence. <laughs>